Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, well, this is the start of several episodes about H.P. Lovecraft's classic tale, The Whisperer in Darkness. Before we get into all those good whispers, however, what is going on? Well, it's October, and... Uh, this season brings us around to the October Horror Movie Challenge. If you're not familiar with that, it's a pretty simple premise. You watch a horror film every day for the 31 days of October. Yes, and if you're particularly mad, you write a full review of one every day. I'm not that mad. I wonder how people have the time. Do they have some kind of wand that suddenly gives them about three or four extra hours a day? Because I can't even keep up with doing like a film every two or three weeks. Scott has this gift. Do you not, Scott? Do you have a magic wand? Uh, no, I just put in a lot of hours on it. <laughs> so what have been your highlights, Scott? What's the what's been the best film you've watched so far? Well, at the time of recording, we're 10 days into the challenge, so it's less than a third. But I think I've already seen my film of the month. And that's a Mexican film from a few years back called Tigers Are Not Afraid. I think this is one that you'll like, Paul. It reminds me an awful lot of uh, some of Guillermo del Toro's early work, particularly things like Pan's Labyrinth. Oh. It's a sort of dark fairy tale type thing that is set in modern day Mexico on a border town about a group of homeless kids who basically get on the wrong side of a drug cartel. And they are somewhat helped by a rather unusual girl who comes into their midst who seems to have the power of three wishes that she can call upon each of which goes horribly wrong when she does bringing horror and destruction into their lives it's just amazing oh sounds marvelous i should look out for that why is it always three wishes it's a magic number matt i was gonna say someone's got to be sensible enough on the first wish and says give me infinite wishes but they never seem to <laughs> given how the wishes work out in this one the last thing you'd want is more wishes no it's the classic evil dm isn't it you get yeah. the wish spell and they contrive to to make it like pull it apart and make it as bad as it can possibly be whatever you wish for it's got to go wrong and you've been watching some as well haven't you paul yeah so far i've, I've managed to keep up with the horror movie a day i wasn't sure whether i'd manage it or not i don't know whether i'll manage it for the rest of october but i'm going to do my best and the best film if i'm going to pick one so far would be resolution from 2012 ah. um i also watched the endless and the two are linked mm. and i really want to see more films in this world i'm going to call it a world mm. it's kind of like a valley or a bit of rural landscape where the the characters as they move around this fairly limited landscape they seem to come upon these people who live there and those people seem to have their own stories that we kind of touch on that could almost be a whole film in themselves yeah it feels like a campaign setting doesn't it yeah but to call it a horror film i mm. mean it just about qualifies as a horror film i'm gonna say it's a horror film for my purposes of the october horror movie challenge but it's fairly light on the horror but high on the I don't know, the character and quality. What the fuck? And, and the what the fuck, yeah. Yeah, I really liked Resolution. Is it uh, Banks and Moorhead, the two guys who 
make these films and starred in The Endless. Yeah, Benson and Moorhead. Benson and Moorhead, that's it, thank you. I've seen three of their films, their first three. So far, The Endless is the only one that I didn't love. I I still liked it, but it didn't quite work for me as much as the other two did. They did another film called Spring, which I actually reviewed as part of my previous October Horror Movie Challenge back in 2014, I think. And I love that one as well. They've got a new film that's just come out, the name of which is escaping me, which is apparently supposed to be excellent. Well, as we approach the end of the year, the Blasphemous Tome issue six is coming. Includes a new scenario from our very own Paul, entitled Operation Varsity, or How to Get Ahead in World War Two. And I must admit, I did <laughs> chuckle a lot when I saw that title. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is going to be a new Call of Cthulhu scenario. And we should just say for anybody new that the fanzine is a printed publication that we send out to all our Patreon backers with articles and maybe some film reviews. Scott, I don't know what Scott's got up his sleeve, but certainly a scenario and it's licensed from Chaosium. And anybody backing us by the end of the year will receive a copy of the fanzine. And anybody backing us by the end of November will also receive a Christmas card from you-know-who. Mr. Jackson Elias. And yes, I will be putting reviews in the tome. It won't be film reviews this time. I've got a an extensive article in there covering the paperbacks from Hell line and the various weird things that have been reprinted from the 80s as part of that line. And also, Scott, you've got a couple of extra episodes coming up, a couple of specials that you're going to put out, interviews with Robert Howells. Do you want to say a bit who he is? Yes. So Robert Howells, he's an old friend of mine, but he's also a researcher into secret societies. He's written a number of books on the subject and done a bunch of television work. And so obviously he knows the subject fairly well. So he kindly sat down with me for some time. We had a a fairly lengthy chat about secret societies, about how they differ from cults and magical orders, and about some of the stuff that we may be able to draw upon for our games of Call of Cthulhu. How to create that secret handshake. And now on to our main topic, The Whisperer in Darkness. The Whisperer in Darkness is probably one of Lovecraft's more influential stories. Not only does it codify a lot of key elements of the mythos, but it also draws in a lot of stuff from other writers, particularly Robert W. Chambers, and brings those into the wider mythos. It's also the introduction of one of our favourite monsters, the Mego. Now, do you say Mego? You say Mego. I do. Matt, do you say Migo or Migo? Migo, but it is—it very much is not Migo. Yeah, someone else's go all the time. <laughs> they always dominate board yeah. games. And I think this is probably one of his most—I was about to say adapted—but it's one of the stories that most other writers and people working in other media have drawn upon. And by the time we get to the end of this run, we'll talk, I think, fairly extensively about the various things that have come out of The Whisper in Darkness. Well, should we kick things off with a look at the background of the story? Let's. Well, this is one of the central tales of the Cthulhu mythos, as well as introducing the Migo, my go, your go, Funky from Yogoth. It also name checks a wide variety of Lovecraft's creations alongside those of other writers. It is in this story, for example, that the King in Yellow enters the mythos. 
But then a few years earlier, we have The King in Yellow mentioned in supernatural horror and literature. So he finally, after, what, three, two, three years, finally mm -hmm. gets to put it in one mm -hmm. of his stories. Well, he also does drop another favourite of mine that's a non-Lovecraft story. He draws on Beth Mora from Dreamer's mm -hmm. Tales by Lord Dunzany. But we'll get to that, I think, in context later. Like at the Mountains of Badness and The Shadow Out of Time, this story is part of Lovecraft's shift into perhaps a more science fiction approach to the mythos, defining his creatures as alien entities. He wrote this story, The Whispering Darkness, in 1930, and it was eventually published, well, actually not eventually, it had a quick turnaround for a Lovecraft story. It was published in 1931 in August in Weird Tales. Yeah, he got a decent payday for this one. This was the most he ever got paid for a piece of work. He earned $350 for the story, which these days is the equivalent of about $5,500, which works out, today's rates at least, at uh, 20 cents a word, which, yeah, isn't bad. It's significantly better than RPG publishing. Everything's better than RPG publishing. Yeah, and at the time, I think he was living, he'd found a way of living on about $15 a week. So uh, $350, $15 a week, that keeps you going for quite a while. Yeah, that's like six months worth. Mm. That's a lot of beans and crackers. Yeah, and when I say he was living on $15 a week, it was a kind of pretty frugal lifestyle, I think. This story reportedly had a troubled birth going through multiple revisions. Writer friends of Lovecraft advised him to make the resolution less obvious. In response, Lovecraft removed a scene in which Akeley's brain cylinder speaks to Wilmarth. There's a nice summary of Lovecraft's struggle with the story in Joshi and Schultz's and H.P. Lovecraft Encyclopedia. Lovecraft lifted some of the descriptions of rural Vermont from his own essay of 1927, Vermont, A First Impression. This was based on his own journey around Vermont. So, yeah, I mean, Lovecraft, I think it's often not appreciated how much Lovecraft travelled because he's very much pictured mm. as this guy who stayed in his own little house in Providence, Rhode Island, and never went anywhere and never spoke to anybody. But, you know, this is somewhat of a misrepresentation. Not only did he, well, I mean, he communicated with lots of people through his his perhaps 100,000 letters or so. You know, he was also recounted in his New York time as being quite outgoing. You know, he'd go to the, the cafe where he'd got the Calum Club, his, his kind of club of friends. And by them, he was kind of recounted as being quite sort of outgoing and so on. But I kind of wonder how much, you know, with an introvert, sometimes they'll, they'll sort of talk at people, whether he, you know, how much he was, you know, seen as the... The, the kind of grandfather of the club as he sort of saw himself, whether it, whether they sort of deferred to him and he kind of, you know, expounded his thoughts and so on. It's hard to kind of gauge without a recording of it to, to know quite how that went down. But he was certainly seen as quite not a shy person, I think, by them. That's that's what I kind of gleaned from reading about it. But also his, his many travels, you know, he travelled down to Charleston in South Carolina, he travelled to Vermont. He, you know, this was, again, quite frugal, Florida. He, yeah. Most of it would be on, on the bus, getting cheap rooms and cheap food and so on. But he did travel around quite a lot. And he wrote quite a bit about his journeys up to Vermont. Yeah. And this, this beautiful, rural, hilly landscape. Describing him as not leaving his house and not talking to anyone pretty much describes me for the last six months, really, mm. at least when it comes to <laughs> talking to anyone in person. Yeah. I think that's mm. most of us, Matt. That essay that he wrote, Vermont of First Impression, is available online, and I'll post a link to it. 
I mean, it's not his best work, but it's interesting. And it's it's also very typically Lovecraft in that in amidst all this stuff about Vermont and its rural beauties and so on, he also rails against modernity and he gets bizarrely xenophobic about fucking Vermont and the sort of tides of strange people there and the strange languages they speak and how they don't really think like us. And, oh, fucking hell, Howie. <laughs> <laughs> it's that state line. It just has this kind of uh, effect of debraining people. <laughs> well, no, he was making the point that this was how he saw the big cities of Vermont, the thriving metropolises there. But once he got outside there to the old-fashioned rural communities, it was okay. There are big metropolises in Vermont? <laughs> <laughs> uh, re- read the essay, Matt. Read the essay. <laughs> Of course, one of the other main inspirations for this story was the discovery of Pluto by the American astronomer Clyde Tombow in February of 1930, so at the time he was working on this. There had been predictions for some time before then, particularly from Percival Lowell, that there was an undiscovered ninth planet beyond Neptune, which was referred to as Planet X. And of course, you know, that's not necessarily considered to be a planet anymore, but that's a whole different story. Surely it should be planet IX. Oh, very good. (laughs) (laughs) I thought planet X was a pretty cool name, actually. Yeah. And Lovecraft was very, very excited about the discovery of Pluto. On the 15th of March, 1930, he wrote to his friend, James F. Morton, saying, What do you think of the new planet? Hot stuff! It is probably Yugoth. <laughs> I cannot picture Lovecraft saying that, let alone writing it. <laughs> Some people sort of say, oh, well, this, this inspired the story. But as you said, Scott, he was already working on it. And he started writing this story on the 24th of February, 1930. He kind of got a bit stuck with it. He uh, he writes on the 14th of March to Frank Belknap-Long saying, I'm still stalled on page 26 of my new Vermont horror. And then the very next day, like when this news comes out, he writes to another friend, Morton, this quote that, that Scott just said. So it's like, I think he'd got a bit stalled on it. And then this news comes out and I guess he can kind of retrofit this news into his story. And it it just, Mm. I figure from that that he was kind of enthused by that and it triggered his imagination to sort of go back to the story and revise it and, you know, bring new new life to it. Yeah, I think most writers have probably had an experience like that at some stage where we've been stuck on some idea and then just some random bit of information has come across our paths and suddenly thought, oh, hang on, yeah, this suddenly makes it all work. Funnily enough, I had that experience last night. (laughs) But anyway... Another major inspiration was Arthur Macken's 1895 story, The Novel of the Black Seal, which I'm sure we've mentioned in previous episodes, published as part of his patchwork novel, The Three Imposters. It's similar to how the Dunwich Horror was inspired by Macken's The Great God Pan. Mm. And I think I'll talk a little bit about the novel of the Black Seal in context as the elements that Lovecraft drew upon crop up in the story. But there are some very, very striking parallels between the two. Now let's get into The Whisperer in Darkness, Chapter 1. Lovecraft begins this story, as he so often does, by hinting at its horrible conclusion, and then he takes us back to how everything started. 
Bear in mind closely that I did not see any actual visual horror at the end. To say that a mental shock was the cause of what I inferred, that last straw which sent me racing out of the lonely Aitley farmhouse and through the wild domed hills of Vermont in a commandeered motor at night, is to ignore the plainest facts of my final experience. Notwithstanding the deep extent to which I shared the information and speculations of Henry Aitley, the things I saw and heard, and the admitted vividness of the impression produced on me by these things, I cannot prove even now whether I was right or wrong in my hideous inference. Yeah, I love that first line. I think it bears looking at again. It starts, bear in mind closely that I did not see any actual visual horror at the end. I think mm. he's, he's really setting it up. And, you know, through this first chapter to sort of say, you know, reader, I'm like you. I don't really believe all this shit. Let's get on the same page. We don't really, I, I didn't actually see anything, right? So you can believe what I'm saying. You can relate to me. I'm not some nutter, not like these rural folk with all their weird tales. That's kind of how I read this, this, yeah. you know, this first chapter. Which is a theme that goes all the way through this story. Mm. The thing that comes to mind, first of all, is how, as you get further into the story, it becomes a bit more obvious, that this is the most gullible investigator PC that you've got that's telling the story. He's pro it's almost that his own denseness <laughs> is the thing that's holding him back from saying, no, I didn't really actually see anything because he didn't see all the signposts leading up to a whole load of shit before it happens in the story. So no wonder he didn't see anything at the end either. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I mean, this is a conversation we had in one of our backer specials about the difference between a protagonist in an RPG not paying attention to supernatural stuff that is going on around them or the weird stuff and believing it. And what would happen in real life if weird stuff starts happening around me that I can't explain? My first explanation isn't necessarily to jump to it being aliens or supernatural entities. Now, I think you'd probably be the same, Matt. You're fairly sceptical by nature. If you start encountering weird stuff, you wouldn't immediately go, aliens, aliens, it's aliens, everyone, it's aliens. I took off my tinfoil hat a long time ago. <laughs> by implication, Scott, you're kind of saying I would, right? Yes, that's absolutely false. <laughs> you wouldn't, Matt wouldn't. Paul, he'd just believe anything. <laughs> you're probably right. I was pointing this out because it was Matt who was sort of talking about how gullible he was. But if you were in that situation yourself, Matt, you'd probably be discounting all this uh, stuff and evidence as being ridiculous, wouldn't you? I would have never went to the farmhouse because the letter's basically saying, hey, I'm going to kill you. Spoilers, we haven't got that far yet. <laughs> but the point is, in the real world, a real person probably would be fairly gullible about this stuff just simply because it is so incredible. And also apologies for saying spoilers, because actually I'm just looking at the quote now. We totally have got the whole story here, haven't we? Oh, yeah. We've got that last straw which sent me racing out of the lonely Akeley farmhouse. He's kind of telling us the whole story right there in that first opening passage. We know what's going to happen. Yeah. You have skipped to the last page. Yeah. You flicked to the last <laughs> line and read it and then come back and written it right at the start. Yeah. But also I think, you know, as a reader, we're reading about this guy saying, you know, I don't believe all this stuff. But then as stuff happens... It's like he's falling for it, but us, the reader, we're like, oh, I see what's going on here. He is like me, but I'm cleverer. I'm kind of, I can see he's being tricked here. Our narrator, anyway, is Albert Wilmarth, who is an instructor of literature at Miskatonic University in Arkham, Massachusetts, and an enthusiastic amateur student of New England folklore. 
He is, of course, a classic Lovecraftian protagonist, a bookish man with no worldly ties. And, of course, he's read the fucking Necronomicon, because everyone has. Ankle's <laughs> read it as well, though. I know. Well, this is the thing. I mean, this is yet another Lovecraft protagonist who has read the Necronomicon. And I can't remember whether we've discussed this on the podcast before, but I think this is a good chance to bring it up, which is... If we had a player in one of our games who started off by saying, yeah, my character's been to the Miskatonic University, or he's from the area, or he's a very bookish man, of course he's read the Necronomicon. Would we roll with that? I'd be very tempted to say that, yeah, you can play it. We begin as you've just been let out of the lunatic asylum. (laughs) Um, after having spent months of therapy in there. But these Lovecraftian protagonists haven't been to the Lunatic Asylum as a result of reading Ah, it. and this is what we put in the 7th edition, is that you can have mm. read it but not believed it. So until you see evidence of it, that sanity hit doesn't drop. Going on what you just described, Scott, I think you could almost have, like, if you were giving out pre-gens and just, like, every player character's read it. Yeah. That's just the, like, you've got 60 strength, you've got, you know... Uh, a flashlight, a handgun, and you've read the Necronomicon. That's just (laughs) like the default setting. But, you know, you haven't actually witnessed anything. But it strikes me as being something of a disconnect in the sort of classic interpretation of Call of Cthulhu versus the source material, in that... Certainly, when I started out playing Call of Cthulhu in the 80s, it was always Cthulhu mythos is this great hidden thing and your characters don't start off with any and they're going to have to really earn it during play and it's really difficult to get hold of and you're going to fail at it anyway. And yet, the fiction that it's based on, everyone knows about this stuff, or at least all the central characters do. Personally, I've come around to thinking that it's actually a lot more fun that way, that characters probably... Well, let's frame this slightly differently, that if you're not running this for brand new players to Call of Cthulhu and the Cthulhu Mythos, then starting characters off with some Cthulhu Mythos does, I think, make the game more fun. It removes that disconnect between player knowledge and character knowledge, and it gives you something cool that you can bring into play. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear why there was the default that you didn't have it because you know, a lot of people would come to the game without knowledge of it. And if mm. you suddenly say, well, you actually, you've got 20%, you know, you know all this stuff. And it's like the player, well, I don't know all this stuff, you know. Yeah. And also, you know, it's coming from, you know, 1981. It's coming from a time when you started off as very low-level characters, generally in role-playing games. You started off as first-level magic user or something with, you know, one spell that once you'd used it, it was gone. You, you were very kind of, uh, you start off from very low levels so I think there was that idea that and there's also the idea with Call of Cthulhu that you are starting as regular people and that's part of the selling point I think that's part of the easy thing to buy into Wilmarth tells how he became interested in sightings of strange creatures following the unprecedented Vermont floods of November 3rd 1927 the bizarre and disturbing objects spotted in the surging waters were organic shapes not quite like any they had ever seen before. Well, these floods were actually real. Oh, yeah. Um, the worst natural disaster Vermont had faced. Yeah, they had something like nine inches of rain in 36 hours. Can you imagine that? Especially, you know, that's... Yes, I can. Yes. I come from Hong Kong. I can absolutely imagine what that's like. <laughs> Vermont just doesn't have the good sewer systems or the bay for it to run into. No, I mean, you know, around here we get floods and it's definitely a problem. Most places around here, you don't get the that level of torrential rain and the subsequent 
you know, I think if you've not witnessed it, you're going to think of floods as, as, as a fairly sort of passive rising of water. But this is like, you know, rivers of water where there oh, weren't yeah. rivers before, you know, washing away buildings and something like 85 people died in yeah. that flood. Like homes are getting washed away and, and, and thousands of people left homeless. And it's not just the water levels that cause problems. I remember a natural disaster when I was a kid in Hong Kong that made a huge impression on me because it happened fairly close to where I lived. And there was one day during the monsoon season when we got the equivalent of the UK's annual rainfall during the course of 24 hours in Hong Kong. Wow. It just rained and rained and rained, torrential rain. And this caused landslides because mm. the earth became saturated and it started sliding down hillsides. And I lived in an area called Mid-Levels on, on the peak in Hong Kong Island. There was a block of flats not too far away, which basically, during all this, just slid down the hill and collapsed, killing an awful lot of people, burying them alive. I remember being a young kid watching Sesame Street on TV and them periodically cutting to news reports of these bodies being pulled out of the wreckage. This probably explains an awful lot about how I turned out. Big bird with dead bodies. Mm. And then we have a description of the creatures themselves. They were pinkish things about five feet long, with crustaceous bodies bearing vast pairs of dorsal fins or membranous wings and several sets of articulated limbs, and with a sort of convoluted ellipsoid covered with multitudes of very short antennae where a head would ordinarily be. It's nice to know that the rain can take these guys out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is, but you don't really want to see them, do you? No. Well, they're only D6. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but five or six, and an idea roll. Wilbarth makes a link between these reports and local folklore about a hidden race of monstrous beings which lurked somewhere among the remoter hills. There were queer footprints or claw prints in the mud of brook margins and barren patches, and curious circles of stones with the grass around them worn away, which did not seem to have been placed or entirely shaped by nature. There were, too, certain caves of problematical depth in the sides of the hills, with mouths closed by boulders in a manner scarcely accidental. I like that problematical depth. Yes. <laughs> what a phrase. Yeah, I think we all picked up on that. How, how deep is that? Is it like three metres, ten metres? Where, where does the problem, problem... You can't tell. Yeah, where does the problem begin? <laughs> <laughs> Probably about 11 foot because your 10-foot pole can't get that yes. far down. <laughs> You've nailed it. But that is actually quite an evocative phrase for all the, uh, the mockery we're heaping upon it. It does sort of suggest things. It sort of suggests that running theme that we see through Lovecraft's work of the horrors that lie beneath us. And the implication that things have been delving into the hills perhaps, mm. or making those holes. Other accounts depict the creatures as having two great bat-like wings in the middle of the back. Although the creatures seem to have trouble walking, they're at home in the air. On the whole, these creatures keep to themselves, harming only those trespassing on their privacy. 
Their buzzing voices occasionally speak to people in the forest, frightening children and making surprising offers to lone travellers. <laughs> I, I was listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast's discussion of this story recently, and yeah, they have a lot of fun with that line. Yeah. <laughs> Five dollar buzz you long time. <laughs> they, they don't quite go that far. <laughs> Some hermits and remote farmers are rumoured to make alliances with these creatures, undergoing a repellent mental change. Now, one thing that strikes me in this story is that Lovecraft obviously is using a lot of stuff from folklore, both real-world folklore and stuff that he's inventing himself, this newly created New England folklore. But the thing that seems, I guess, odd to me is how accurate all this is. Folklore tends to be, I guess, contradictory, vague. And in this, the folklore is telling us, really, a lot of very accurate things about the Mego. I'm thinking if if we got folklore in our games, if we're using it as a way to convey information, drop hints and so on, do we either as GMs or players expect that folklore to be so accurate so precise or do we expect it to be filled with red herrings and contradictory information like folklore would be i've used folklore in a couple of scenarios before one of the ones i've drawn upon probably the more in depth is from the east angular folklore thinking of the likes of black shuck because there are so many contradictory versions of that Mm. story for the same creature that it's a great thing as a GM that you can just pound the players with saying, no, you've got to stay on the path. No, this thing's a port end of death. No, you only see it along the coastline. And that oh, it will chase after you. Oh, it came through and ran through a church door and left a scorch on the far wall of a church. You can just bombard them with so many stories that the stories have got multiple accounts of them. But it's up to them to then suddenly think, well, what does the evidence actually point to being true? And then when you finally encounter the thing, right, which is it finally going to be? Yeah. You can leave them guessing almost right the way up until the end just because there's such a sheer volume of stuff that you can use. But I think it really depends on the scenario as to how how much you want to throw at them or even if you are drawing accurately on the folklore, what elements you want to use and what you don't want to use. And I'm interested that you use that bit of folklore, Matt, because that does crop up in one of the adaptations that we will talk about in a future <laughs> episode. Ah. As far as the use of folklore to convey information like that goes, I'm conflicted because I like the idea that folklore is contradictory. And yeah, that whole uncertainty aspect you're talking about there, I think, can be very effective in this scenario. Think of all the different vampire legends around. It's sort of, yeah, all right, well, here are 50 different things that we've been told will protect us against vampires. Are any of them actually true? Are they consistent? Are there reasons for all the differences? Are there different types of vampires? What do we do if we encounter one? And that, I think, helps breed horror. At the same time, as a player in RPGs, particularly an investigative game like Call of Cthulhu, you're often bombarded with information and just trying to keep track of the details that are true and piece everything together is... Yeah, I've seen a number of games stumble games that I'm GMing or playing where players have been unable to 
keep all that information straight, being able to make the connections, and is bad enough without red herrings. Once you throw red herrings in, are you actually making things unfun for the players? And it's one that I, I can never make my mind up about. I still want to see an RPG scenario use the vampires that hop and have their arms um, outstretched. <laughs> oh, yeah. You don't see enough of those. They don't get enough screen time. It puts me in mind of the tale, three people who go and witness the elephant, mm. the three blind people, and one you know touches the, the side of it, one touches, I don't know, the ear, and one touches the trunk. And they all describe it very differently as totally different things that seem conflicting. But of course, they're all witnessing the same creature. So I think when you get the answer i think you should be able to look at those hints and sort of say oh okay that makes sense now i think if it was just a total red herring and when i say red herring i mean it like total misinformation that doesn't fit in at the end it can be a bit feel a bit of a damp squib on the other hand i think particularly at one shot there could be quite an effective moment where you realize that as players or as investigators, you've been piecing together all these bits of folklore from what you realise are now completely unreliable sources, and you've placed your survival in the hands of utter bullshit. Yeah, I think we sometimes see that in the vampire films, don't we? You know, that suddenly the cross and the garlic or whatever, they don't work at all. Well, why yeah. would they? <laughs> you know, you fool. <laughs> I was more thinking the, uh, well, yeah, it goes into spoiler territory a bit, the end of Bubba Hotep. Right? Well, that's very much, what is this shit? <laughs> said this was going to work. <laughs> Locals refer to these creatures as those ones or the old ones. Some with Celtic ancestry link them to old stories about malign fairies and little people. The Penacook myths say the winged ones come from the great bear in the sky and had mines in our earthly hills whence they took a kind of stone they could not get on any other world. Now, the Penacook are a, a local tribe, I think, from mm. the area, right? From um, Vermont. Yeah. Uh, and these, these myths, where they describe the winged ones that carry people away into the mountains, you know, they are documented myths from those people. I believe. Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit about it in the new annotated H.P. Lovecraft, the Leslie Klinger book. Mm. It's only a little bit, but if you're interested in learning the bases for that, if you have a copy of the book, look it up there. I'm also taken with the fact that the locals refer to these creatures as the old ones, because this is Lovecraft again sort of messing us around with what this term means because we got the older things in uh, the mountains of madness and dreams of the witch house and these are sometimes conflated with being the great old ones whether there's some connection there and now we have the migo being referred to as the old ones mm. yeah this is oh my going back to what we were saying about sort of muddying the waters with with folklore yeah, this is, I think, quite a cool bit of misdirection that you could put in your games, referring to the Migo as the old ones. Almost like some spells have alternate titles to make you think it's doing something when in fact it does something completely different. Mm. These legends also state that the creatures merely maintain outposts on the earth and are shunned by all animals. Wilmarth is amused that some of his colleagues take these legends seriously, believing there is a kernel of truth to them. He tells such people that they follow much larger patterns of myths. 
The Vermont myths differed but little in essence from those universal legends of natural personification which filled the ancient world with fauns and dryads and satyrs, suggested the Kalikanzari of modern Greece, and gave to wild whales and island their dark hints of strange, small, and terrible hidden races of troglodytes and burrowers. No use, either, to point out the even more startlingly similar belief of the Nepalese hill tribes in the dreaded Migo, or abominable snowmen, who lurk hideously amidst the ice and rock pinnacles of the Himalayan summits. There is a lot to unpack here. Just a bit. Yeah. So Kalikanzari, what are they? I'd never encountered this term before, and I still don't really know, but the little references I found in a couple of books suggest that they are apparently vampires of some kind that tear their victims to pieces, but there was also a reference to them being young men who wander around naked, so I don't know. Hey, who says they can't be both? Yeah. And the Migo, or, or Migu, as the notes in Klinger tell us that it might be pronounced, means something like wild man or man wild in Tibetan. Yeah, this, this is something I don't really get. I don't see how you can conflate this insectoid, no. crab-armed, glowing mm. head, winged thing to a great big shaggy, tall, white-haired humanoid. No, no, and I read this this time. You know, I tried to read Lovecraft's tales and put aside my accumulated yeah. understanding of it that I've gained from other sources. And reading it again, there's a bit of a conflict here, but I think at least in part he's saying that these Vermont myths, they're like the natural personification. So, you know, making the natural elements into figures, into dryads and satyrs. These are sort of spirits of nature and we're, we're making them into beings in a way that we can tell stories about them. And I think he's saying like the things in Vermont, they're a bit like the things, you know, we see a similar sort of process happen in other places in the world. We see it happen in Wales. We see it in Ireland. We also mm. see it in the Himalayas. And then I sort of started to wonder, well, is he actually saying they're the same thing? But he does seem to later say, actually, they are the same thing. They are the Migo. These, mm. these crustaceous beings in Vermont actually are the Migo. But yeah, like you, Matt, I, you know, we've also got this, mental image of the yeti that we've seen from other fiction or maybe real life of, of you know this big sort of shaggy seven foot tall humanoid being that stomps around everest much like the bigfoot in um the sasquatch in in america so it's hard to reconcile those two yeah, there's certainly the parallel that they are creatures that live in high places in mountains. So these are creatures that are living in the hills of Vermont, and obviously the Yeti are mountain creatures in Tibet. So there is that parallel. I guess you've also got in this, getting ahead of ourselves slightly, the fact that the Migo do take on perhaps human guises, or at least um, disguise themselves as humans. And that maybe they have reasons for taking on humanoid shapes in Tibet, and that could be the origins of uh, this. So, maybe. So it's a Migo inside a Yeti. That's what I was wondering, yeah. I was thinking that the Migo have their own environmental suit now. Yeah. Yes. That's another possibility. 
They don't really need to keep warm, though, do they? They fly through space. You say that, but there was also a similar thing in uh, the Mountains of Madness, wasn't there? In that you have the older things which can fly through space, but were then discomforted by the changes of environment at the bottom of the ocean when things got really cold. But hadn't they also degenerated by that point over millions of years of being accustomed to Earth's climate? Maybe they lost that that hardiness that was um, amongst their ancestors that came here first. Yeah, I'm pretty sure my distant ancestors would have lived in caves and been quite fine with that. I would not. (laughs) We've got too soft. Yeah. Or alternatively, maybe the abominable snowmen are things that are created by the Mego, and that's why they're associated. I'm thinking of uh, Doctor Who, where you've got the Yeti and those. Oh, the great intelligence that created them, yes. Yeah, you could probably do something along those lines. Wilmarth rounds out his diatribe by comparing these legends to tales from extravagant books of Charles Fort and the magnificent horror fiction of Arthur Macken. If you're going to steal something, you might as well give him a name credit. (laughs) So, well, for a start, who was Charles Fort? I think, wasn't he uh, someone that went on to write for The Twilight Zone? Because I'm fairly sure that's where I recognise the name from. That's Charles Beaumont. Oh, I thought he wrote for it. No, like the 14 times. Yeah. Charles Fort was dead long before The Twilight Zone, and he never wrote fiction. That wouldn't stop him. (laughs) (laughs) Charles Fort was an American journalist who was interested in what he referred to as the damned, which were facts or bits of evidence that scientists would not take seriously because they did not fit in nicely into people's conceptions of how the world worked. So all these strange phenomena like falls of fish or sightings of UFOs or strange cryptids and stuff like that. And he wrote a number of books, including The Book of the Damned, which were compilations of all these things that he'd researched from various sources that did not fit into people's worldviews. But his approach was a very a sort of sardonic, detached one, where he wasn't presenting all of these things as evidence that they existed or to present a unified worldview of, hey, all this weird shit's out there. It was just sort of, well, people keep reporting this stuff. Why doesn't anyone take it seriously? And this sort of detached, amused view of the whole thing became known as the 14 Approach and then birthed publications like the 14 Times. Ah. So when you hear people talking about 40 and that's what it means, sort of this this desire to look at the strange, these things that don't fit into our idea of consensus reality, but at the same time not to necessarily ascribe any firm definitions or meaning to them. I'd wonder where the term 40 and came from. So, hmm, learn something new every day. And of course, the other mention there is Arthur Macon, who wrote, as we said, the novel of the Black Seal, which I think was very much the template for this story because it deals with a folklorist who becomes interested in the horrible truth behind the fairy tales of Wales and is aided on this by his discovery of a black stone with strange carvings all over it. And as he researches all of these things, the the little people seem to start taking more and more direct action against him until eventually he is snatched away, never to be seen again. Except we know that doesn't happen because we've already read the first paragraph. <laughs> well, 
Mm. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see, Matt. We'll see. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you will also find links to all our social media presences. We have t-shirts and other merchandise available at our Redbubble store. And if you're enjoying the show, please consider backing us at patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias. We offer a variety of interesting rewards to our backers, so please do check that out. Thank you for listening. It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you for a start to you for listening to this podcast. And thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Yes, a big thanks going out to Al Smith. And also thanks going out to Jake Gardner. Thank you very much to Ian Stead. And thank you to Curtis Roselle. And thank you very much to Elise C. Aha, and a familiar name here. Thank you very much to Simon Brake. And thanks to Kelly Regan. And thank you very much to David Maguire. And thank you very much to Will Bazer. Ah, yes, of the uh, Ain't Slade Nobody podcast. Oh, yes, yes, I, yeah. I, I'm so used to guessing his first name there, I hadn't quite pieced it together. But yes, thank you, Will. And thanks to Ryan Couch. And thank you very much to Chris Lavalley. And thank you very much to Campbell Snedden. And finally, thanks to Tom Wright. And I'd also like to take this opportunity to say, if you are enjoying the podcast, please do let other people know about it. I mean, personal recommendations out there on social media or just to people you know online really go a long way towards spreading the good word of Jackson Elias out there amongst those who, who need to hear it. Bringing light to their lives, Scott. The gospel of Elias. Joy to their ears. Indeed. Is that it for today, guys? I think we've covered it. I think so. It's probably going to be a shorter episode than usual, but we've hit a natural break and we'll be back with ooh, a lot more next time. We've laid the groundwork. Now, yeah, hopefully the story begins. Well, until next time, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes. Mm-hmm.